the practical reality is the reason we have affirmative action is because we live in a wildly imperfect society, one in which there is a long, bitter, ugly history of discrimination. Greetings, and welcome to Briefly, a production by the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Tai Chen, and today we will be exploring the future of affirmative action in university admissions programs under the current Roberts Court. I'm beyond excited to introduce our two guests for today, Professors Jeffrey Stone and Adam Mortara. Professor Stone is the Edward H. Levi Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School, a former dean of the law school, and a former provost of the University of Chicago. As a prolific writer and preeminent scholar, Professor Stone has authored a leading textbook, a host of books, and many amicus briefs on constitutional law issues. Mr. Mortara is a lecturer in law at the University of Chicago Law School. He was the lead trial attorney in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard and is an expert on affirmative action and university admissions programs. It is a privilege to have you both on the show. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Ty. Great to be here. So this conversation about the future of affirmative action in university admissions programs is an important one to be had. We have the looming 25th anniversary of Gratz and Gruder, the changing composition of the court, and recent protest movements and calls for racial equality. Before diving in, I'd like to set the stage for today's discussion. And so first to you, Professor Stone, how would you define affirmative action? So I would define affirmative action in the context in which it now exists as taking into account as one of many factors in making admissions decisions, diversity, and in particular in this context, uh, seeking racial diversity, although not necessarily as limited to that. And the idea, I think, is twofold in, in the minds of universities. One of them is the fact that diversity is seen as a value uh, for the intellectual and academic environment. And the second is that we live in a society in which there has been, from our very beginning, a great deal of injustice and white supremacy and discrimination. And the effects of that obviously continue in very dramatic ways to this day. And that universities have have had the the sense of responsibility that they, uh, along with other institutions, uh, should take that into account in attempting to improve society and addressing some of those issues by giving opportunities to people who have been the, the victims, either directly or indirectly, of that kind of history. And I think it's fair to say that there has been quite some debate and controversy surrounding the issue. Why has it been so controversial? So it's controversial because, uh, in particular, it involves taking into account race. It could involve other factors as well, of course, but the most controversial aspect of it is that it takes into account race. And the question is to what extent uh, it is appropriate or constitutional for uh, academic institutions to uh, take race into account as a factor. Certainly taking race into account in a way that is intended to and explicitly does discriminate for example, against African-Americans, would obviously be not only controversial, but patently illegal. The question is whether it's different if a university chooses to take into account race uh, insofar as it's attempting to uh, benefit African-Americans, and whether that should be seen in the same way as laws that discriminate against African-Americans, either from a moral standpoint or from a legal standpoint or from a constitutional standpoint. Mr. Martaro? Um, So I think for my own part, as may occur many times throughout the discussion, I I really have no major issues with the way 
uh, Jeff has defined the topic. I, I, when I heard the question, I thought to myself, you know, this is a tough one because there's plenty of things that everybody would regard as affirmative action that no one regards as illegal. So a great example from the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard uh, trial that came out during the trial is that uh, Harvard buys lists of names of students that take the PSAT from the college board. And Harvard sends letters to students scoring in certain ranges, basically inviting them to apply to Harvard. And in certain instances, the score ranges are different based on race. So they'll, they'll go down to a lower SAT score, for example, to send a solicitation letter to an African-American. And this makes sense because, frankly, they, they have quite a bit different admission standards for African-Americans. So they're soliciting applications from people that have a chance of potentially matriculating at Harvard. And yet, because that doesn't involve the ultimate admissions decision, it is simply a recruiting tool. No one thinks that's illegal. It's definitely affirmative action in the sense that I think it would be commonly understood. It's an action undertaken with regard to race, but no one would say, at least I don't, I'm not aware of anyone who said, Students for Fair Admissions did not say that that is illegal. And this would be a great point, by the way, Ty, to observe that I thanked you for being here. I should also thank my client, Students for Fair Admissions and uh, Edward Bloom for the ability to be here to say things and speak not on behalf of Students for Fair Admissions, but on behalf of myself. There'll be probably a few instances today where I'm definitively speaking in, in a way that is not uh, necessarily the views of Students for Fair Admissions and isn't really about the litigation posture of the case. But this one, I know, because I was there, we did not challenge that type of activity. So Professor Stone defined it in a way that is isolated down to what is really legally in dispute, which, are, which really are the decisions about in the, in the higher ed context, admissions decisions. And that's that really is what is at dispute, is making an admissions decision using race in part. Professor Soon, would you agree that our conversation today is largely confined to the admissions decisions context? Okay, that's a very interesting question. I don't know that the Supreme Court would uphold a policy of differential recruiting on the basis of, say, race. I'm not sure why they should. I mean, if you, if you take the view that the anti-affirmative action justices have taken, I'm not sure why, in principle, it should make a difference, whether it's admissions or whether it's recruiting. They're both treating people differently on the basis of race. And the court seems to say that's what we don't like. I think, Jeff, what you're saying is under the Equal Protection Clause and the, the frankly, sort of labyrinthine jurisprudence that is developed under the Equal Protection Clause, it doesn't seem to make sense to focus on the ultimate decision. And so when you're talking about a state actor like the University of Michigan, that may very well be true. And we've now already hit upon a different way in which I conceptualize the Harvard case, because in my mind, the Harvard case is a case under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And, and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act talks about exclusion from participation in or the benefits of any program or activity receiving federal assistance. So that means really the ultimate admissions decision. And, and I think this is exactly a place I wanted to get to in this conversation, which is I, I don't see why the court has always insisted, going back to Backey, that the Equal Protection Clause and Title VI go hand in hand. And I see your point about the Equal Protection Clause from the perspective of, say, Justice Scalia's perspective or Justice Thomas's perspective. But on Title VI, I think, I feel, I feel on much firmer ground when I'm when I'm in Title VI land, then I guess then I guess I would be making this argument from an equal protection basis. And why is that? I'm sure for a lot of us, when we think of affirmative action, our minds immediately leap to the equal protection clause. 
What is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and how does it relate to affirmative action? Title VI is actually spending clause legislation. So it ties its prohibitions to the receipt of federal funds. Another uh, provision of the Civil Rights Act your listeners will be familiar with that does that is Title IX, which prohibits uh, sex discrimination. It wasn't passed in 64, it's, it comes later. So Title VI says, no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And that means basically every institution of higher education in the entire country, with the exception of Grove City College, Hillsdale, and maybe Bob Jones. I think there are three colleges that do not accept federal monies and therefore are not bound by Title VI in any way or, or other spending clause legislation. And so that's what it says. It is in some sense more specific than the Equal Protection Clause, which talks about equal protection of the law and not about higher ed decisions, and has this word discrimination, which to a lay person, and I think to a lawyer, means treating different people differently, which is what leads directly into the discussion we're about to have about affirmative action. Because, of course, the, the abundant evidence is that is exactly what a higher ed affirmative action program does. Is it treats different people differently because of their race. And so transitioning to the Equal Protection Clause itself, the language in the 14th Amendment states, nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. Through what lenses might we try to understand the meaning of this language and how it should apply to affirmative action and university admissions programs? Mr. Mortara? In my view, the way to look at particularly Section 1 of the 14th Amendment is the way that I would look at any of the prohibitions in Article 1, Section 10, or or even any of the affirmative grants of power to Congress in Article 1, Section 8, which is we have here very broad language that is susceptible to a variety of interpretations. The originalist exercise in interpreting this language has produced a a robust debate, if you will, and, and it would be accurate to say no clear winner in the debate on this subject. From my perspective, the purpose or what Section 1 of the 14th Amendment means to me is what Section 5 of the 14th Amendment gives to Congress. Congress has the power to enact broad civil rights legislation that implements the prohibitions in Section 1. And when you work, I work forwards from the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which bars discrimination in private contracting. And in my mind, Section 1 is there to provide additional powers to Congress to pass civil rights legislation that it did not previously have. And I'm very wary of independent, non-statutory court enforcement of the broad language in Section 1. Professor Stone? Well, I mean, I obviously take a different view. It's true that uh, Section 5 is there for the purpose of enabling Congress to enforce the rights guaranteed in the 14th Amendment. Um, And it's true that one impetus for the 14th Amendment was to enable Congress to act given the historical circumstance at the moment. But I think it's also true that Congress was fully aware of the fact that it didn't limit the 14th Amendment to that. It could have said simply that Congress shall have the power to prohibit any state from denying any person equal protection of the laws. Didn't say that. And it easily could have written it that way. And if you go back and read the history of it, it's quite clear that they understood that this was a constitutional guarantee that limited the states beyond what Congress chose to do. Uh, in the same way that the First Amendment limited the Congress. 
And so I, so I think that, that that's too narrow an understanding of the 14th Amendment. And if you were writing the 14th Amendment with that goal in mind, you would have written it completely differently. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's what the framers intended Section 1 of the 14th Amendment to be, something that's only enforceable by Congress. Uh, Section 5 simply said it can be enforceable by Congress. Beyond that, to go back to the basic question, I think the, the, the problem is that uh, no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws on its face tells you nothing. Taken literally, it basically means every law is unconstitutional because virtually every law treats some people differently than other people. You know, you have to have gone to law school to be a lawyer. Ah, that's unconstitutional. It treats some people differently than other people. So you have to figure out how to give some content to that. And that, like as with other constitutional rights, no state shall deny any person due process of law or Congress shall make that law abridging the freedom of speech or the press. I mean, none of those are self-defining. And taken literally, they, they hold everything unconstitutional. So the question is, what does it mean? And my own view is the way, the proper way to address that is to go back and look at, you know, what was the, the concern that led Congress to enact these various provisions? And with respect to equal protection of the laws, my sense is that their primary concern was the paradigm of discrimination against African-Americans. That was the problem, the evil, that they were most obviously concerned about. And I think that's where one should start thinking about how to give content to this otherwise completely open-ended and meaningless guarantee. And so I think the right starting point is to say, to what extent does this particular law that treats X differently from Y have similarities to what the paradigm of equal protection was about? which was discrimination against African-Americans. That's, I think, a coherent and appropriate way of giving meaning to what the Equal Protection Clause means. And therefore, one might say, well, discriminating against against Asian-Americans is analogous to discrimination against African-Americans or discriminating against Native Americans or discriminating against Jews. Because all of those have similarities to the discrimination against African-Americans. To go beyond that, discrimination against women, for example, or arguably gays uh, and and lesbians. And again, the analogies are not perfect, and one can make arguments about how far one goes. But I think what one's looking for is, is it an immutable characteristic? Is there a history of discrimination against it? And is there reason to believe that the government is acting out of motivations that are not rational and sensible and fair-minded? but that are based upon considerations of prejudice and so on. And so I think that's the way to think about how to give meaning to the Equal Protection Clause. It goes beyond that. It's more complicated. But that, I think, is at the core of how to think about what the Equal Protection Clause means. Thank you, Professor Stone. That's a very helpful framework for how to understand the Equal Protection Clause. Mr. Mortara, it seems to me like there's a more fundamental disagreement here about the role and responsibilities of courts in our system. As any discussion about constitutional law, I think virtually any that that Professor Stone and I could have, this very quickly resolves down to one's view of the role of courts in our legal system, both from a normative perspective and from maybe even an originalist or textualist constitutional perspective. My, my difficulty with what Professor Stone said is not from a moral perspective, indeed, at Pedek, as to any of the particulars that he outlined, but is is only as to who should be given the power to make these decisions. I mean, as as Jeff, you were talking, I was thinking to myself, 
when is he going to say that we can rationalize from this principle to discrimination against women? And and I waited, and, and then you did say it, and I thought, you know, well, I, that's and and you acknowledge it's a perfectly debatable proposition. And to me, and I I, I think this uh, about virtually any provision of the Constitution, the 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 lead the. the Section one gives the power to Congress to do these things. Congress immediately goes, and we have stuff like Section 1983 and the Civil Rights Act of 66, um, Section 1981, and that's great. Now we're going to now, in my mind, this is effectively a a principle of constitutional law of American life and and jurisprudence that should animate how we make political decisions. I am deeply wary of the court. As an arbiter of what it is that the that that the people can and cannot do, and and Jeff will immediately bring up instances in the history of 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 our society where the court has stepped in to protect minority rights. Fully acknowledge that those exist, but I but I don't really think the court has done an excellent job of profiling and courage to protect minority rights. There are but a few instances of them doing so, and and in many of those instances, uh, they've cut off debate in a way that has been unhealthy for us. And so, so too here, I think that the problem, I, I in no way mean to impugn what Jeff is saying from the perspective of a scholar and academic, but underneath a lot of the academic defense of affirmative action lies the supposition that when put to the people, affirmative action is still today resoundingly unpopular. And every time it's been subjected to a plebiscite, it has gone down or just about every time maybe about to be repealed, Prop 209 may be about to be repealed in California, but the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative and so on and so forth. And so the suspicion is left to democratic devices, there would not be affirmative action. And therefore, we need to keep people out of this decision-making process as much as possible. So what I think people on in favor of affirmative action would ultimately say is not just that you're free to have it or not, your, your, your choice, private actors, but that it must be had. Professor Stone? I don't think there's any argument anyone's made that the Constitution requires affirmative action. I want to go back to the more basic question about courts, though, because I think it's important to understand, particularly if you believe in framers, what the framers thought about this particular question. Because if you remember, the original Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights. And one of the reasons it didn't have a Bill of Rights, um, Madison explained at the time, was that he feared that if you put a set of guarantees like freedom of speech and freedom of religion and so on in the Constitution, that the majority would just do what they wanted. And they would disregard whatever it said in the Constitution, and that would lead to a sense of, of disillusion, and therefore we're better off not having a Bill of Rights if the majority can just disregard it. And he had this exchange with Jefferson after the Constitution was, was proposed, um, in which Jefferson said, how come there's no Bill of Rights? And Madison explained it largely in those terms. And he said all it would do would basically be to lead to disillusion about how, how, how serious our Constitution should be taken because these guarantees would be ignored by majorities when they wanted to ignore them. And Jefferson looked back and said, what about courts? Judges and justices who have life tenure, who have a commitment to the, to the protection and guarantee of these rights, can be a protection and, a, and can guard against these abuses of majorities. And Madison then bought that. And then when he proposed the Bill of Rights, he defended it exactly on this ground, on the theory that it will be courts who will protect against abusive majorities when it comes to things like freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of unreasonable searches and seizures and so on. And that's where courts come in. 
And so the whole point of having the Bill of Rights from Madison and Jefferson's standpoint was that courts would guard these rights. Now, you're right that how well have the courts done over the past couple of centuries is a mixed bag, right? It's, they've been far from perfect by anybody's measure. But I think it makes a lot of sense to recognize that there are certain dangers in a democracy. And those dangers are, in particular, indifference to or discrimination against particular minority groups who are seen by the majority as the other. They don't care about them. They're indifferent to them. And they're not going to treat them fairly. And, and the other, I think, has to do with, with the very core of democracy, that if majorities have the power to make rules, they will do so in a way that ensures their own preservation of power. So they will manipulate the rules of democracy so as to make sure they stay in power. And that's what this is what Jefferson and Madison talked about. They said we need courts to guard against these two concerns because we cannot trust democracy with a free hand, particularly with respect to these two issues. Thank you both. I'm sure we could devote an entire podcast to the province and duties of courts, but I'm afraid I must not just along. Uh, we've covered the Equal Protection Clause, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The last remaining piece is federalism. And so, Mr. Martari, you mentioned that several states have banned the use of affirmative action in university admissions programs. How does this interact with federal law and Supreme Court precedent? It's pretty easy. So after the Grutter decision in 2003, Barbara Grutter and others went about getting a ballot initiative together called the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative, which basically looks just like Prop 209 in California, and it passed. Uh, that was challenged uh, on both, I think, state law and federal constitutional grounds in the Supreme Court. Uh, de declined to overrule the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative. So the stage that is set is the states are free to ban affirmative action. At least that's the current state of federal law. The states are free to ban affirmative action uh, if they so choose. Uh, but absent such a ban, Grutter and Fisher control and higher ed institutions, including state institutions, are permitted to engage in affirmative action under the rubric of those two cases. Perfect. And so with that, we're ready to dive into judicial precedent. During today's podcast, we'll be covering seminal cases regarding affirmative action and university admissions processes. I think it would be helpful to begin the segment by discussing how we got to where we are today. I'd like to start with the Regents of the University of California v. Bakke 1978 decision. And so, Professor Stone, what was that case, and how does it relate to the standards of review that the Supreme Court applies when deciding equal protection cases? When the court first confronted the question of affirmative action in this context in Bakke, the court had well established that laws that discriminated against African-Americans or other racial minorities were unconstitutional unless the government could satisfy strict scrutiny, which basically meant to demonstrate that laws were necessary to serve a compelling governmental interest. And almost nothing could satisfy that standard. In Bakke, where the issue was affirmative action by a public university in the University of California, Davis, uh, the question was, is that a situation in which the same standard should apply where the beneficiary were African-Americans rather than the targets were African-Americans, the victims were African-Americans? And the justices divided on that issue. Put simply, there are three types of standards the court, in theory, could have chosen from, given general equal protection doctrine. Uh, one is to say, this does not involve discrimination against 
African-Americans or other racial minorities. Therefore, it's permissible as long as it's rational, which is the basic generic standard for laws that treat people differently from one another. And uh, that's a highly deferential standard and virtually everything passes. Uh, the second approach was to say that this is a situation where the court should apply intermediate scrutiny. That is, because it involves race, it is potentially problematic, and we should be uneasy about government making racial discriminations. Uh, it might abuse that authority in ways we should be careful about. And therefore, as in certain other equal protection contexts, like discrimination based on gender, the state has to satisfy intermediate scrutiny, which is to basically show that the law substantially serves a substantial government interest. And then the third approach would be to say that any law that treats people differently on the basis of race doesn't matter whether the beneficiary are whites or blacks is presumptively unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause. There's no difference between them and strict scrutiny applies across the boards. In Baki, Justice Powell, in his concurring opinion, which was the decisive vote in the case, uh, took the position that any discrimination on the basis of race, regardless of whether it benefited uh, African-Americans or whites, is suspect and should be test tested by strict scrutiny. Justice Brennan, I mean, in the opinion joined by Justice Byron White, Thurgood Marshall, and Harry Blackman, said, no, this is different, that this is a case where intermediate scrutiny is appropriate because we don't have here the same concerns that are so central when a law discriminates against African-Americans. There's not a history of discrimination against whites. The, the concern about an improper racist motivation is very different. The history of discrimination just doesn't exist. And therefore, we still should be cautious about these things. So intermediate scrutiny is appropriate. But this is not a situation where strict scrutiny should apply. The other four justices who agreed to strike down the law did so on statutory grounds. So they didn't address the direct equal protection issue. What was particularly fascinating about Powell's opinion is that he made two conclusions in the case which were interesting. One was the fact that, as I said, strict scrutiny applies. But second was the fact that he said there is no compelling interest in rectifying past discrimination that would justify affirmative action. But then he said, however, that diversity of higher education is a compelling interest. And that, therefore, the use of, of race to address issues of diversity would satisfy strict scrutiny, although not in the particular circumstances of Baki, because they had a flat-out quota for African-American students and white students. But in a more generic type of an approach, Powell said it would be constitutional, even under strict scrutiny. And the weird thing about that, and everybody noticed it at the time, is if you applied strict scrutiny as it had been applied to laws discriminating against African-Americans, it would be very hard to justify the suggestion that affirmative action, even to achieve diversity, would satisfy strict scrutiny, frankly. So Powell was clearly saying strict scrutiny, but actually suggesting something somewhat more diluted than that. But he wasn't prepared to go as far as Brennan and to say intermediate scrutiny should apply. So he was fudging. This was the first time the court had addressed the question, and he was being a little bit disingenuous in writing his opinion. Understandably, because it's a complicated issue, and he, he was not really, he hadn't really thought it through all the way. Mr. Martara, any thoughts? Jeff is clearly correct. 
I mean, there's just no, there's no question about it. Uh, the, the front part, after you get to the Frederick Douglass quote, quote of Justice Thomas's Grutter opinion, I think pretty conclusively establishes that what the majority in Grutter is doing is not strict scrutiny under a traditional conception of it. So these are just words. These are just words that are thrown around, but it bears no resemblance to what the so-called invidious style uh, discrimination that, that Jeff is also referring to. On that point, Justice Thomas argues that there is a moral and constitutional equivalence between race-conscious classifications that disadvantage minorities and ones that confer a benefit onto minorities, or perhaps what we would call invidious and benign discrimination. What are your thoughts on that? If you start yourself in the right place, you can get to, or you can get to either answer. So, I mean, obviously, I think if I walk outside of my house and I see um, a Chinese American person. And I, I, I hand him a hundred dollar bill because he is Chinese American. And if he, if I, if he'd been a white person, I would not have handed him a hundred dollar bill. Getting a hundred dollars is pretty obviously a benefit, and it's hard to see how it hurts somebody. And similarly, if I walk out of my house and I see someone and I attack them with a baseball bat because of their race, it's pretty hard to see how that's helpful. So there's plenty of ways in which somebody can act on the basis of race, and we can be pretty sure that it's helpful or harmful. And if we start off there, then we, we acknowledge that, the, that, that all actions on the basis of race are not harmful, at least it seems so, because the, the $100 example doesn't seem harmful. But I think where Justice Thomas is coming from is when the imprimatur of the state is involved in creating racial classifications, and it's on a systemic basis, it becomes more difficult to see whether these classifications are, are hurtful or harmful. Uh, the Grutter opinion has an extended discussion of this point, and I don't think it's—I don't think it's the idea that we start off with. Well, we know that affirmative action is beneficial, but it's equally as bad as things that are absolutely, uh, on a, with, with no dispute, harmful. His point is that affirmative action is harmful to both the uh, alleged, what he would say, the alleged beneficiaries, which is to say, the underrepresented minority students who otherwise would not have been admitted to the relevant institution walking around. And I think these are, these are uh, frankly, I wouldn't want to call them stale, but they're well-trod uh, debating points, walking around with a stigma, a stigma that, by the way, is, is uh, in my view, very erroneously attached to Justice Thomas himself, uh, that, that because he allegedly was a beneficiary of affirmative action, somehow he himself is not uh, intellectually up to the task, which is clearly false in my view, uh, but that that stigma follows people around. And then, of course, there are people and uh, that that would have been there regardless of any affirmative action program. And they themselves are deemed simply by the color of their skin to have been the beneficiaries of, of such affirmative action because we don't walk around with labels on our face saying, I got into the University of Chicago Law School uh, because I went there for undergraduate and, and, and had all whatever special treatment I got when I was admitted, we don't walk around with labels about why we were admitted. And the nearest label anybody can see when they know that there's affirmative action in place is skin color. And that these racial classifications are ultimately harmful for everybody. And so I think where he's coming from, based on what he's written, is the idea that very quickly, when the state institutionalizes racial classifications, it becomes it becomes virtually impossible to tell whether they're good or bad. And, and therefore, we should deem all of them bad. And therefore, we should apply a, a more robust version of strict scrutiny. I, I, with the greatest apologies to Justice Thomas, if I've mischaracterized his views, I think that's where he's coming from. 
Um, but I think if you start off with me walking out on the street, and, and I think affirmative action to many people has the salience that Jeff has articulated, which is it's kind of an unadulterated good for the beneficiaries. And it's a distributed harm for the people that don't benefit. Uh, and, and, you know, one point I frequently make when I talk about Justice Thomas's greater opinion is that, uh, and many people do not see this when they read it, is that there is zero mention of the white plaintiff anywhere in that opinion. Never once is the white plaintiff mentioned in that opinion. And I think because, I don't know why, but I would suspect it's because Justice Thomas's focus is actually on what he perceives to be the harm done to the beneficiaries of affirmative action. And you mentioned Grutter v. Bollinger and Gratz v. Bollinger, the seminal pair of cases from 2003. Uh, Mr. Martar, I believe you, you might have some firsthand experience with those cases. I was actually a law clerk at the court for Grutter and Gratz. So my comments will be limited to, of course, things that fall outside of my obligation to confidentiality to the court. But those cases involved two very different affirmative action programs, one created by the University of Michigan undergraduate program, one created by the law school. The one created by the law school looks very much like uh, the broad outline that Jeff gave in his opening remarks. If you take the University of Michigan Law School at face value, it was a so-called holistic admissions process where race was but one of many factors to be considered, and every student was treated as an individual applicant. There was no formal dual track admission system, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to be somewhat skeptical that that was what was going on, you can turn to something in the late 20s of the slip opinion of Justice Thomas's opinion, where he sets out that there were wildly different admission standards going on at the law school, University of Michigan, between white applicants and African-American applicants. An African-American applicant who scored above 150 on the LSAT was essentially assured admission to the law school, whereas that didn't happen for a white applicant until they were in the higher 160s or something. And there was a, a very, very significant difference. It might have even been 145 uh, for African-Americans. It's, it's, it's in the opinion. Uh, nevertheless, the, the court's description of the law school's admission process roughly conforms with what Jeff said at the outset. The undergraduate process is frankly less interesting, except for a comment that, that Justice Ginsburg made about it. The undergraduate process, because the University of Michigan is gigantic and gets a gigantic number of applicants, had reduced the, the the affirmative action component of it to a numerical value on a point system. And for whatever reason, Justice O'Connor being the split vote between the two cases, so she's in she's in the majority of Gratz actually, and she's in the majority of Grutter as well, the court strikes down the program for the Michigan undergraduates with the point system and upholds the program for the law school roughly using the logic that, that Jeff has already outlined. It's really not that important to revisit it. Diversity is the rationale, holistic admissions. It's all great. Go forth and prosper. You have you have academic freedom to decide who's going to be a part of your uh, law school. And I won't bore you too much with Justice Thomas's dissent, but it starts off with the idea that there's no compelling state interest in even having a law school at all. So forget it. You're, you're going to lose because some states don't have law schools. You particularly don't need to have an elite law school. Michigan Law School trains only something like only 20% of the graduates actually practice law in Michigan. Who are you kidding here? This is not a state interest. You lose. Um, On the undergraduate side, though, Justice Ginsburg makes a comment that I think has not been, uh, hasn't been discussed enough. It's It's in her dissenting opinion, which is, what is wrong with this? This at least is transparent. 
this at least you can see what's going on. How is this not better than what the law school is doing where nobody knows why these people are making the decisions they're making and they're, we're just supposed to take their word for it that they're using race in an appropriate way. And that has turned out to be incredibly prophetic. And the, the story of what has happened in the Harvard litigation is really a story about all of Justice Ginsburg's concerns that really animated, I think, her vision that what the undergraduate was doing, University of Michigan was doing in its undergraduate admissions was actually in some ways better. Come to roost in Harvard where it becomes extremely difficult to figure out without massive discovery and a load of economic uh, consultants and experts, how it is that their system actually works. And I think as a society, we have to, I, I have come to the view since 2003 that if, we're, if we were going to have affirmative action, it should be absolutely transparent what is going on. And the court has taken this very bizarre approach, which is to say, it, you can't have a quota system. That's backing. And, and it comes back and grutter and everything. You cannot have a quota system, which would be transparent. You can't have a point system. That's grats, which could be transparent. You must hide what you are doing. It's very strange. Playing on this theme that Mr. Mortara just touched upon, Professor Stone, is there any teeth to the argument that these admissions programs are really just one in the same, and we are fixing these superficial labels of a quota versus a quantifiable boost versus uh, one factor in a holistic admissions process? Is there really a distinction amongst these programs? Well, a quota system was seen as more problematic because it suggested that regardless of qualifications, we were going to admit X number of African-American students and no more than Y number of white students. And it didn't matter what the qualifications were. And that's why the quota thing was particularly offensive and, and rightly so in my view. So the idea of either the the Gratz or the Grutter approach was seen as preferable to a flat-out quota. It's interesting that only Justice O'Connor drew the distinction between the two cases. And in voting the way she did in Grutter, she had changed her prior positions, which had all been striking down affirmative action. So I think she was going through this process of figuring it out and drew this particular distinction, which as Adam says, may not be ideal and may not make a lot of compelling sense. Thank you, Professor Stone. And so that brings us to what makes this podcast especially topical, and that is Justice O'Connor's language from Grutter that reads, We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. And we see in oral arguments in Fisher 1 with Justices Scalia and Breyer, and then in Fisher 2 with Chief Justice Roberts, that this language is conceptualized as either an expiration date or a hard deadline for the court to revisit this issue. What are your thoughts on Justice O'Connor's language? Justice O'Connor, who I must take this opportunity to say as someone that I grew to deeply admire as a person while I was at the court, in, in an act of what could only be regarded as judicial caution Included in the Grutter majority opinion, this timeline that has been frequently discussed, which is that 
the expectation that in 25 years, affirmative action will no longer be necessary. And I think it's incumbent on people like Jeff to, to not address it as a legal matter, because whatever, the law is whatever the court says it is. But to, to address the fact that, oddly enough, no one who is a big proponent of affirmative action will, uh, no one will admit that there's any point in which we're not, we're not any point, any foreseeable point in the future in which we're not going to need it, much less 2028. Harvard admitted in our case that they haven't altered their use of race. They haven't diminished it in any way, shape, or form over the relevant time period. The use of race has not gone down. And the evidence showed the use of race hasn't changed at all in Harvard admissions in the relevant time period. So when is it going to end? And I'm not saying this as like a sop to Justice O'Connor. I'm saying it because it it appears, it it speaks directly to Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts' comment that the way to stop discriminating on race is to stop discriminating on race. And and the idea that this is literally a forever plan. And and that, that I think Jeff Jeff that's a, that's a question I think that your side's got to answer. I think Justice O'Connor was being optimistic and naive. The practical reality is the reason we have affirmative action is because we live in a wildly imperfect society, one in which there is a long, bitter, ugly history of discrimination that has had devastating effects on the equality opportunities of African-Americans in particular, Hispanics as well. And there hopefully will become a time that that will no longer be in place. But if you look at our society today, in terms of income levels, in terms of educational opportunities for kids in grammar schools and high schools, the difference between African-American kids and Hispanic kids on the one hand and whites on the other is dramatic. And this is about discrimination. It's about poverty. It's about education. And we're better than we were 25 years ago. I don't doubt that. But progress is slow. It's slow in part because, as we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, or last couple of days, we've not done a very good job as a society of addressing these issues. We've made some progress. We passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We have affirmative action programs. But the practical reality is we are very far from a world in which the opportunities for young black people is similar to that of young white people. And until we get to a position more or less like that, I think we do need to continue to take steps to try to rectify both the past and the present realities of discrimination. Now, O'Connor said 25 years. She was not saying we'll be done with this in 25 years. She was being hopeful. And I think she was being overly optimistic. I think at the time, many people thought it was overly optimistic. But I don't think anyone should fairly read it into the opinion as if O'Connor was suggesting that, okay, this opinion ends in 25 years. She was basically making a hopeful statement about progress in society, which turns out we haven't made nearly as much as she might have hoped for when she wrote that opinion. Thank you, Professor Stone. That brings us to my last question on this segment on judicial precedent, and that is, where does this leave us? We are approaching the 25th anniversary of the Grutter decision. We have pending federal and state law claims against UNC, UT Austin, Harvard. Do you have any predictions as to what the outcome might be if the Supreme Court does grant cert? They won't wait. 25 years. They won't wait till 2028. 
So uh, I, I think they will hear these cases well before that. Given what the justices on the current court who have taken positions on these issues have said, including particularly uh, Thomas Roberts and, and um, Alito, I, I'm not optimistic that they won't hold affirmative action unconstitutional. I think they will well might do that. And I don't see any sense that they believe that affirmative action is appropriate in our society. I think they believe it is inappropriate. It's inconsistent with the Equal Protection Clause. I don't know when they will make that decision, if the five of them are still there, but I don't think they're going to wait that long. I think it's like abortion. I think this is an issue on which the five of them have very strong views. And um, I'd be surprised if, if, they're, if they're there when the issue arises, if they don't uh, hold it unconstitutional. And that's basically the view that, that most of the conservatives, other than O'Connor, Kennedy, uh, Souter, and Stevens, have taken for the last 20 years now. Uh, I'm, I'm a little less willing to be uh, predictive about it. Uh, the, I think the only thing I'm, I, I could say with confidence, um, and that's based on, on uh, his jurisprudence, is that, is that Justice Clarence Thomas will, will, will continue to maintain his longstanding position on the subject. Uh, and, and even then, I, he, has, he has confessed himself to be wrong about things on a number of occasions. So I'm not even, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm willing to say that with 100% certainty, although I'm pretty darn close. I, I really don't know whether these cases will even get to the court or what the court will do when they get there. It's obviously, it's on the website. It is the mission of Students for Fair Admissions to pursue the end of the use of race in higher education admissions. That is the stated goal of my client. This is a great transition to the Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard case. Mr. Mortara, you've framed the, the lawsuit as an effort to dismantle white privilege. Would you care to elaborate? I believe that it, that a, a heretofore, before the Harvard litigation, point, unstated facts about this debate is the tension and the, the marriage of affirmative action for underrepresented minorities and white privilege preferences. What is going on at Harvard, what, what the evidence showed is that Harvard sets aside over 20% of its seats every year for whites through the use of legacy donor preferences and preferences for athletes who are actually also predominantly white. And that, that's about 30% of the admitted class at Harvard. The analysis showed in the absence of preferences for those groups, 70% of those kids would not have been admitted to Harvard. That means that, that right out of the gate, and this group is over 80% white, right out of the gate, Harvard is setting aside about 20% of its seats for whites. And they dig themselves into this diversity hole. Then they need to use race in their admissions, they say, so they can achieve a diverse class after they've already put aside 20% of their class for whites. What they're unwilling to do is get rid of these, frankly, white privilege preferences so they can go about assembling a diverse class without express consideration of race in the process in a manner fully consistent with Title VI and even Justice Scalia's view of the Equal Protection Clause because they love these white privilege preferences. And so the way that this is gonna to come to a head is either the court will do what Jeff, I think I, I think it's appropriate to use the word fears it 
fears it will do, which is ban the use of race in higher ed admissions. And then I think Harvard values racial diversity in its admitted class more than it values the white privilege preferences, and it will get rid of the white privilege preferences so it can continue to assemble a diverse class. Or we are finally having a debate, largely because of varsity blues, but also because of the Harvard litigation about these, these frankly, I can't even come up with the moral justification, these morally repugnant privilege perpetuation preferences that multiple universities, including Harvard, have. Senator Ron Wyden has introduced legislation to ban these preferences, which I'm, I'm a passionate individual supporter of. And that is another way we can go about getting to where we need to go. Because if, if Harvard wasn't setting aside 20% of its seats for whites, it would not need to use race to assemble a diverse class. I don't accept that at all. I mean, I'm not defending Harvard for doing what you know, you're ch- challenging them for doing, but the notion that if they didn't do that, they wouldn't need affirmative action, I think is completely wrong. Because as far as I can tell, every institution of higher education that is trying to achieve a reasonably diverse student body is using affirmative action, regardless of whether they're put, putting aside these 20 students. Now, maybe Harvard, I don't know, maybe Harvard is in some way different, but you're assuming that the reason they need affirmative action is because they're setting aside these 20. I don't think that's true. I think the practical reality is that we live in a world that's unjust, it's unfair. Opportunities for education are completely unequal for people who are going to high school and so on. And that that's the reason. That's the reason why we have affirmative action. Right, it may compound it if you set aside a certain number of seats for, for white privileged people. So that may mean you have to even do more affirmative action. But to suggest that without that, you wouldn't need it, is this wrong? If I thought you were right, I don't think I could be involved. But this is the evidence in our case, Jeff. If they got rid of the privilege preferences and they increased the socioeconomic preferences that they already have, the diversity numbers would not change. They didn't challenge that. They just told us they didn't want to get rid of the white preferences. They didn't actually challenge it. You know, the SAT scores went down by 1%. And nothing else changed. Basically, the racial numbers are all the same if you boost socioeconomic preferences. And the reason they don't want to do that is that Harvard likes rich people a whole hell of a lot. And the makeup of their class from a socioeconomic perspective would dramatically change. But the Harvard system in no way distinguishes between an African-American student at Sidwell Friends in Washington, D.C., the, the utter child of privilege in every way except perhaps the color of their skin, and an African-American student going to, a, going to a, an underfunded school in the city of Chicago or the city of Detroit, who despite maybe even not even having textbooks or any support of any kind, manages to score, oh, I don't know, 1,300 on their SATs or 1,250. The Harvard program treats those kids exactly the same if they've got exactly the same SAT score, more or less, and, and, and absolutely privileges the Sidwell Friends kid. And, and, and so I do think that Massive socioeconomic preferences or an increase in socioeconomic preferences as getting rid of the white preferences would put them in the right place. Whether it would put every university in America in the right place, Jeff, and I'll concede this point to you, is another question, one that I'm not equipped to answer because we haven't taken five years of discovery from every university in America to figure it out. But I think we have a disagreement about the facts that is not resolvable in this podcast, but I, I will say Nobody wants an all-white Harvard, or nobody wants nobody wants a Harvard that is devoid of African Americans, Hispanic. I, I don't. Students for Fair Admissions doesn't want that. Um, I don't want that. It remains the case, though, that under the current system, 
over 50% of the African-Americans who are admitted to Harvard College and about a third of the Hispanics would not be there but for race preferences. You know, again, I'm not saying anything about the Harvard situation as such, but what I am saying is that if we did not have affirmative action being used in a, in a pretty aggressive way, uh, we would have many fewer minority students and much less diversity, a much less effective educational system and a much less just society over the long run. Thank you both. It is fascinating to think about the dynamics at play here um, and to consider what the true motivations of colleges and universities are when they decide to implement affirmative action. I'd like to tie our conversation back to the strict scrutiny standard of review that Professor Stone outlined earlier in the podcast. Uh, up until now, we've discussed the compelling interest in fostering diversity and perhaps remedying past discrimination. But there's a second component to this strict scrutiny analysis, and that is the necessary prong. SFFA in the Harvard lawsuit mentions class-based affirmative action or looking to a student's socioeconomic background. Professor Stone, are, are those viable alternatives, race-neutral alternatives under Fisher II? Let's suppose that affirmative action was declared to be unconstitutional, as we now understand it to be, and a university decided to have a class-based program in which it, it basically looked at income of family and admitted students from lower income families to a much higher degree than it does now. First problem is that minority groups are far poorer on average than white groups, but the total population of poor people who are white is much greater than the total population of African-Americans who are white because African-Americans are only 11 to 12% of the population. So what you'd wind up doing is admitting a lot more poor white kids than poor black kids. And again, that's not a bad thing in terms of admitting more poor kids generally, but it doesn't really deal with the racial discrimination that exists in our society nearly as well as affirmative action as we now understand it. It becomes wildly inefficient and as a practical matter, it wouldn't work very well. The other problem with it, of course, if you try to admit the same number of African-American kids that you now have in, in a college um, and you were doing it in that way, you'd have to admit far more poor students than you do now. And schools can't afford to do that because they all need huge scholarship funds. And so you'd have to quadruple the scholarship money you offer in order to maintain the same racial distribution. So I think it would not be realistic. And finally, I think this court would strike it down because it would say the reason you are doing this is to achieve racial diversity. And that's unconstitutional. Mr. Martara, over to you. Yeah. yeah. I, what I would say is I, I, I disagree with Jeff's last point. I don't think the court would strike it down. And when he said schools can't afford it, he meant that I'm going to put brackets in his statement. Schools other than Harvard with its $40 billion endowment can't afford it. Certainly Harvard can afford to do it. And, and the other thing is, you know, there's sort of two pieces going on here, Ty, that I find very interesting having now been sitting, you know, frankly, marinating in this debate for the last uh, two plus years. One is that nobody's been forced to try these things. So the court has repeatedly balked at actually forcing any university to freed from the constraints of, of some state law issue, try to implement a, a race neutral alternative. What the court in students for admission said is Harvard likes its alumni and I'm not going to force them to get rid of their legacy preferences in order to achieve 
racial diversity. And there's been a remarkable amount of deference to universities and, and with the greatest respect to Professor Stone's former job as provost of the great University of Chicago, a remarkable deference to university administrators. And frankly, one that I think is completely unjustified, particularly from, from a historical perspective. That That's piece one. Piece two is, and it goes back to, I think you referenced the point that California, the University of California is, has now said that they're going to get rid of the SAT as an admissions measure. And Jeff pointed out that the dis racial distribution amongst socioeconomically disadvantaged folks. And there's one kind of undercurrent to both those things. And, I, and by the way, I'm no way suggesting that Jeff was thinking about this undercurrent. He was not, I'm sure. Asian Americans are very disproportionately socioeconomically disadvantaged relative to whites. They're the fastest growing immigrant group in our country. And they, the socioeconomic distribution amongst Asian Americans, particularly the immigrants, is, is what you would expect from any immigrant group. The University of California is getting, is getting rid of the SATs and Mayor de Blasio in New York wants to get rid of the selective enrollment test to, to get into the Stuyvesant and the other high-ranking selective enrollment schools in New York, perhaps because they're distressed at the number of Asian faces that are occupying seats at these places. Thank you, Mr. Martara. There's a lot that I want to unpack there. You know, in my eyes, there is this undeniable, suffocating handicap imposed upon Asian American candidates. A Princeton 2005 study found that Asian American candidates need to score 140 to 450 points higher than candidates from other racial groups on the 1600-point SAT. And most recently, the National Borough of Economic Research poured over the data from the Harvard lawsuit and found that Asian Americans would be admitted at a rate 19% higher absent a personality rating penalty. And what I'm left wondering is, how is this not an equal protection clause violation if we're talking about equal protection under the law? I personally think much of what is going on here is invidious discrimination directed at Asian Americans. And it's just being covered up through the veneer of, oh, the SAT is terrible, it's not a great measure. And it's being covered up. I mean, de Blasio isn't even covering up. He actually said he didn't like the fact that there were too many, there were so many Asian Americans at Stuyvesant. That, that there is a lot of that, and every debate has two sides. There's always a group within one side that's full of, it's frankly, wackos. Right? There is a group in the kind of university admissions left that is deeply distressed about the number of Asian Americans on these campuses, and and something one of the things that's driving this is that there are whites that do not like this fact. And I'll, use, I'll just use an anecdote. I've gone all over the country, all sorts of places, told people that I was involved in the Harvard case. And you could sum up the Harvard case in you know five minutes, you say. Harvard has a system. They have this thing called the personal rating that's supposed to be about how vivacious or interesting you are. It turns out that Asian American applicants to Harvard are systematically awarded lower personal ratings than white applicants. And that results, that results in them not being admitted in as high numbers as they would be otherwise. And generally speaking, if you're talking to a white person who is a, sort of older than me or around my age even, the response I get is, oh, but that's true. My, my Johnny was so much more interesting than the Asian kids at his high school. I mean, literally people believe this stuff. And that, that, that part of this is the yang to the yin of Jeff, what I think, what I think you've heard a lot of, which is that somehow, some ways, students for fair admission is kind of piggybacking on the on, on the backs of of Asian Americans to achieve its broader objective, which is to get race out of 
higher ed admissions. I, I, I'm curious what you think about that, Jeff. Well, I mean, I have no sympathy for any discrimination against Asian Americans or any other racial group. And so I would completely support the notion that universities cannot do that. That's illegal and immoral. I mean, I don't see any reason why one cannot preserve affirmative action programs without allowing racial discrimination against particular other racial groups. So, I mean, I would say that affirmative action for groups that merit affirmative action is appropriate and, and taking race into account in a way that disadvantages other groups because of their race is impermissible. But I don't see that as inconsistent. I think this is, this is kind of taking the larger points we've been discussing and taking it down to a very specific issue. In, in, in 1991, the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education issued a report on Harvard's admission system, which largely absolved Harvard of allegations of discrimination against Asian Americans. But there was very troubling evidence found of racial stereotyping. And so one comment that came that's in the report, uh, which is now, I think, public because you, it's, it was an exhibit in our trial, is an admissions officer commenting on, a, on an application saying, uh, student is, this is on a paper application, mind you, quiet, and of course wants to be a doctor. The Office of Civil Rights actually identified these as disturbing instances of, of racial stereotyping. You, you know, in, in, the bright, in the bright line world that Justice Thomas lives in, this is easy. You know, you gotta blind yourself to race. You can't even see it on the application. If it, maybe if a kid talks about their race on the essay, that's, you know, that's unavoidable. But in reality, we're going to create a very stark world where this is just, you just can't think about this. That's a, that, that's a world that's easy to, to grasp. The harder one to grasp is a world where, like, frankly, the one we live in, where admissions officers have all this unfettered discretion. It's very difficult to figure out why they made the decisions that they made. And we're really in a position of trust us when it comes to one of the most sensitive things in 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 polite society, in, in society today, which is racial discrimination. And so, of course, if there's discrimination against Asian Americans, there's something wrong happening. The problem is, I think it's it's deeply difficult to ferret out. I mean, we put on a, an absolute avalanche of evidence of it in the case of Harvard, and we ended up with a judge for whom I have the most profoundest respect of any federal judge in America. Yet I will say, in her opinion, she suggests that the reason that Asian Americans uh, applicants to Harvard get lower personal scores is because they deserve it. Mr. Martara, I'd like to expand upon your point about Justice Thomas's hopes to see a colorblind, bright line world. I think it'd be helpful for our listeners if we were to explore the two alternate universes that might exist when tackling this issue from an Asian American perspective. In my mind, there are two. First, as the world presently stands, universities make race-conscious determinations, and so strict scrutiny applies, and we look for a compelling interest that is necessary. In an alternate universe in which the Roberts Court strikes down affirmative action as we know it, then we're in Washington v. Davis disparate impact territory. Is that a fair characterization? We have this debate with Harvard about whether strict scrutiny should apply here. And the debate is largely a result of the fact that our view is Harvard has chosen to consider the race of every one of their applicants. And at that point, we're in strict scrutiny land no matter what. And it's not a Washington v. Davis disparate impact case because any because you've, you've admitted you're using race. And the premise of Washington v. Davis is that you have some kind of ostensibly race-neutral policy. The policy at issue is Harvard's admissions program, which is decidedly 
not race neutral. It's the opposite of race neutral. One of the things that is deeply distressing to me, and I said this to Judge Burroughs in the closing argument, is that the way that this, the way that this case is developing, the way that it's positioned, is that it is highly, I, I think the likelihood that Harvard is ever found by a court to have committed the acts that, that I believe they committed, which is intentional discrimination against Asian American applicants, is quite low because of the concerns that you've raised about the disposition of the conservative members of the Supreme Court are likely to, to I, I don't think throw the baby out with the bathwater is the right metaphor, but it's the idea that they're just going to get rid of the whole thing. And so there's no need to actually address this specific tort, if you will, the specific discrimination that occurred against Asian Americans, because, of course, Justice Thomas thinks that no use of race is, is appropriate. And so this historical episode, I think one thing that's just, just kind of distressing about it is we have one thing that's going on with Asian Americans, which, which if Jeff agreed, if Jeff looked at all the evidence and agreed with me, he'd say, well, that's a problem with respect to Harvard's treatment of Asian Americans, the remedy to which is some kind of oversight or 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 blinding of race with respect to Asian Americans versus whites. It really has nothing to do with the rest of Harvard's affirmative action program. And yet where we are is we're debating the use of race at all in university admissions. I guess what worries me as an Asian American then is that this all plays out as one might expect it to. The current Roberts Court strikes down affirmative action finds it offensive to discriminate on the basis of race, even if to confer a benefit onto a minority group. And then we transition into a Washington v. Davis world, in which disparate impact is permissible absent improper motivation. Where does this leave Asian Americans? We have this robust empirical data showing that we are disadvantaged, but this might never hit the Yigbo threshold for discriminatory intent. And even if it does, we come full circle back to, well, that's tough luck because promoting diversity is a compelling interest, if not from a constitutional perspective, at least from a normative perspective. And so, Professor Stone, assuming that the court strikes down affirmative action, how should we think about the disparate impact analysis? If we're talking about a situation in which an institution is neutrally applying legitimate considerations in a way that has disparate effects on different groups, The Supreme Court, as you know, in Washington and Davis, made clear many decades ago that mere disparate impact is not a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, as long as there's a rational basis for the government using whatever criterion it is using. And even if it has a disparate effect on African-Americans or Jews or women or Asian-Americans or whatever, the court's approach is to say, that's life and it's not discrimination. And that's the end of it. In that situation, the court has said, you have to actually prove that the intent of the government was to discriminate against that group for impermissible reasons. Now, that's been the law for many, many decades now. And I was troubled by it at the time it was decided and remain troubled by it. Um, Not necessarily because there's an an intentional discrimination going on, but there's an intentional indifference. And in my view, the intentional indifference should matter. And so I agree with the court that the mere fact that there is a statistical difference in and of itself shouldn't render something unconstitutional, because if that was true, 
everything would be unconstitutional, right? Basically, every law has disparate effects on different groups. And uh, that, you can't go down that road. That would be crazy. Um, but if there's a serious disparate effect on a particular group, racial group, religious group, whatever, then I think a court should say that the, the government has to demonstrate there is more than just a rational justification for doing it, for using whatever standard they're using, even if it has a disparate effect. If what they are doing is making a generalization about Asian Americans, that would be, in my view, unconstitutional, flat out discrimination. If what they were doing is interviewing people one by one by one and making a judgment about their character or their personality in a fair and neutral manner, and they're looking for people with particular types of personalities to make the university a lively place, and that has a disparate effect, that becomes a disparate effect problem. Thank you, Professor Stone. As I listen to this discussion about the role of Asian Americans in this complicated landscape, I think that in many ways this comes back to how we define merit. And there is a myriad of considerations, considerations that are outside the scope of this podcast, but on a broad level you have the shortcomings of purportedly objective factors like SAT scores and GPAs on the one hand, and the unreliability of subjective factors like the personality rating and the implicit biases they introduce on the other. One thing that I do want to discuss is... Do you think the SAT is a reliable indicator of merit and predictor of future academic success? On the SAT score, it's interesting. I think there's been a lot of growing discontent with the SAT for two reasons. One is the fact that although SAT scores used to be, and still to some extent are, reasonably predictive of a student's performance, one thing that's happened is that wealthier kids nowadays are having endless courses to prepare them to the SAT. Now, that doesn't prepare them to be students. It doesn't mean they're going to be better students. They're basically figuring out how to buy themselves a higher SAT score. And that has completely perverted the SAT as a legitimate basis for making judgments. And it's even worse than perverting it. It's perverted it in a wealth way that makes it really particularly offensive. So I think that's a new phenomenon, and it completely undermines the legitimacy of using the SAT. And the other reason why I think schools are moving in the opposite direction is, is because of U.S. News and World Report. Because U.S. News and World Report, over the last 25 years, has come to dominate so many decisions that are being made by academic institutions. Because where you're ranked in U.S. News and World Report has a powerful effect on what students choose to go to your school and what your alumni think about your institution. And that means they wind up giving far more weight to the SATs than they ever did in the past, because that's a major factor in U.S. News and World Report. So getting rid of SATs, I think, in general, the two primary objections to the SAT today is that rich kids are now learning how to get courses that wildly inflate their SAT scores, which don't correlate with how they perform with students. And second of all, the U.S. News thing has so corrupted everything, let's just get rid of this as a factor. There's kind of two things that I think of when Jeff says what he says, which both of which I think are are eminently reasonable propositions with which I don't I don't disagree. First thing I think about is, gosh, you know, I'm not a giant fan of the SAT. I'm not I really have no reason to to I'm not in their corner, but uh, the college board's corner. But the first thing I think is, if you make if you make college admissions even less objective 
than it is today. So you take away this, this allegedly objective measure that is biased by the wealth effect that you're talking about. And by the way, the SAT adversity, the college board adversity score was an idea meant to counteract exactly what Jeff's talking about. And then everybody got all agitated about the adversity score for reasons that I can't quite figure out. I was a giant fan of the idea. You're going to make things less objective or less transparent. How are we going to fight invidious racial stereotyping and discrimination of the type that we allege occurred with Harvard, particularly with respect to Asian Americans? And the second point is the historical analogs here to what happened in the early 20th century at all the Ivy League institutions with Jews is, is it's just, it's, 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 like, it's like somebody screaming at the top of their lungs. It's the exact same thing. Uh, historically, Harvard, you know, they, 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 they had an admissions exam. Uh, immigrant uh, Jews started to dominate the, the results on those exams to the point that the population, the Jewish population at Harvard was steadily increasing. The same thing had happened at Columbia already in New York and in Columbia had sort of flipped over to the point that Columbia uh, was becoming a perceived, uh, was perceived to be a Jewish institution to the point that the Gentiles, I guess, allegedly because of discriminatory motives, no longer wanted to attend. And Harvard took, an, took action to stop not all Jews, but, but these particular immigrant Jews from, from attending Harvard by instituting disguised quota systems and the statue of the Harvard president that institute that is still up there at Harvard today. And in fact, they enlisted Jewish alumni of Harvard, those that had been in America longer, the non-immigrant Jewish alumni of Harvard to support this institution, divided that community. And the, the echoes with, with all this today is seemingly the same. We have a test. A certain group is performing very, very well on the test. Rich white people aside, we have an identifiable racial minority group. They're dominating performance on this test. So on the one hand, you have a case like mine where many a variety of mechanisms are deployed to depress their enrollment at Harvard. Uh, and on the other hand, you, you get rid of the test. And I mean, Harvard got rid of the test ultimately. Harvard moved to the admission system that they have today in part so that they could disguise their discrimination against Jews. And I'm seeing it all play out all over again. And Jeff, you're a much better student of history than I am. I would hope that you at least concede the possibility that some of that's what's going on here. Thank you both for an illuminating and candid discussion of a subset of issues that often gets overlooked and discounted. Mr. Martara, I'll leave you with the last word for this SFFA v. Harvard segment. I think I think one thing that that may have stayed the hand or the pen of my friend Judge Burroughs is the idea that the remedy that that could the, the remedy might be the obliteration of all consideration of race and disproportionate to the harm. I mean, after all, she found that there was a penalty against Asian Americans. She found it was small enough that it was sort of overwashed by the benefits of Harvard's affirmative action program. And in that sense, I think kind of conflated remedy with harm. Thank you, Mr. Martara. I'd like to wrap up today's episode by asking you, Professor Stone, whether you have any words of wisdom that might help guide us through this challenging conversation. I, I want to say a little bit about personal experience here, because I think it, it's, for me, it's always been a bit illuminating. When I was a student at the law school, uh, in my class, there were two African-American students. And they were largely invisible in terms of their speaking out about issues on which they had experiences that were different from the rest of us. 
because they felt so conspicuous about it. And there was a complete absence of diversity in that sense, even though there were two African-American students. Watching the culture change over time as the number of minority students dramatically increased over time has had a profound effect on what goes on among students, what goes on in the classroom, what goes on among conversations among faculty, because they're interacting with a wide range of different students. And the quality of the educational experience, in my view, has gone up dramatically because of that. We are now thinking about issues that previously just weren't there and talking about perspectives that just weren't being presented. So I think that the diversity issue really is much more important than sometimes people imagine. If you, if you could imagine our law school today with two African-American students per class, it would be a very different institution. Thank you, Professor Stone. And with that, we conclude today's episode. This is a difficult but necessary conversation for us to have moving forward. A word to our listeners, I hope that you are staying safe and well. And I hope that this has been an insightful experience for you. I know it certainly has been for me. Thank you again, Professors Stone and Adam Mortara. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks. It's been great fun. Thanks very much. And thank you, Jeff. Always good to talk to you. You too, Adam. Take care. Take care. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UCHILREV and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.